All right. On this episode of the Park Hills Podcast, we are going to dive into Revelation 19 and 20. Pastor Rich and I are going to just look at some of the things that we could have tried to cram into an already long sermon that I heard a lot of feedback on. If you want more information, go to parkhillschurch.com. There's so much stuff there, whether it's podcasts, blog posts, sermons, everything that you need is right there. verses, there are probably a dozen other side topics that you could pick up, um, but we're going to just focus on two of those today, right? Correct. The big one that we're going to start with is just the idea of the Word, right? So when you read in Revelation 19 and uh, verse 21, it talks about the fact that Jesus rides into battle, and as he rides into battle, the entire armies are just destroyed merely by the opening of his mouth. And so it starts with the beast being captured in the couple verses before that. The false prophet is also captured, uh, not by Jesus, but by some type of power of some sort. Uh, although I'm not saying it's not Jesus, it's just it's not clear as to how they're captured or why. And then Jesus speaks with the sword from his mouth, and it just wipes everybody out. And that shows up a bunch of times in Scripture, doesn't it, Rich? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the the whole idea of word, it's it's... It's a wonderful topic, uh, and John really dwells on this in a lot of areas. He, it, John, uh, his gospel starts with a, a huge statement about the Word. He actually almost repeats part of that in a summary form in First John, and you'll see echoes of that even in uh, the second and third uh, letters that he wrote there too. So um, I think we should talk more about that because it is... Um, it, it, you, when you start to recognize this idea of word and this concept of speaking, it runs all the way through Scripture. Yeah, I mean, Paul talks about the word of God being a double-edged sword. He also talks about it being the sword of truth. He talks about how the word cuts sinews and muscles, and it just it cuts to the heart. It gets right to who we need to be. In the Old Testament, we see that the word is wisdom. You have the, word, the book of Proverbs, which talks a lot about heed my words, listen to my words. You look at the book of Psalms, how many times does it show up where it says, your word is this, your word is that, your words are these, your commands are these. So there's this idea that the the wisdom of the word brings life, it brings meaning, it brings purpose, which is a a very ancient concept in the Hebrew Bible, but it's also ancient in other places. And so in John 1, where John actually uses the Greek word for word, which is called the logos, we start to break it down a little bit and realize that Logos has much more going on than what we think. And so I think John uses this for a reason. We're going to get to that in just a second. But just to sort of lay out what the Logos is, I'm going to read this quote from Heraclitus, which is one of the um, prophets, or not prophets, but uh, philosophers before Aristotle and Plato. So he's very, very old. And he says this, this Logos always holds, but humans always prove unable to ever understand it, both before hearing it and when they have first heard it. So that means you're not fully able to understand it or or process it. For through all things, or though all things came to be in accordance with the Logos, humans are like the inexperienced when they experience such words and deeds as I set out, distinguishing each in accordance with its nature and saying how it is, but other people fail to notice when they do awake, just as they forget when they do while sleeping." 
Now, that may seem like a rambling philosophical statement, and it is. But what Heraclitus is saying there is there's something tangible about knowing the truth, knowing the word, the word logos here. But when you start to understand wisdom, you start to realize what you don't know. And it's sort of this ethereal concept that's floating out there. And they're trying to grab truth and gravitate toward it, but it's almost unattainable. It's almost untouchable. It's almost done, you know, you can't quite grasp it. And that's what Aristotle says. He talks about the logos being the heart of an argument that sometimes you totally nail it, but most of the time you're never quite getting exactly what you want. And I don't know about you, but in, you know, right, right now in election season, I feel like nobody's really quite hitting the actual heart of the true argument. You know, people are arguing about this or that or the other thing. And they'll, they'll color it their way. They'll make it say what they want it to say. But there's the real idea of truth is never fully understood. And even to the point where Play, or Philo, Philo, one of the later Greek philosophers who also was a Hellenized Jew, so he actually had taken Jewish steps in his religious practices as well, he believed that the wisdom was this, or Logos was this ethereal being that sort of helped create things from the beginning, which is interesting. Because I think what John's doing is he's pulling out an idea that's very ancient, right? Genesis 1, what happened? God speaks in creation. It's like it's there. Right. And, you know, it, if, you, if you start to think about that concept of words and speaking and the power, you will actually, uh, and just kind of even do a quick word study, just uh, you could even go to the Google machine and try this sometime. Have you heard about Google? It's this, I have. Okay, it's a cool kind of an interesting thing. Anyways. You can find parkhillschurch.com from Google if you want. Oh, very nice very segue. Helpful. Very nice. <laughs> but Shameless you, plug. But you could take a look at um, just throughout Scripture, there is so much in Scripture about the power of words. Um, you know, even in, in Proverbs 18, it says, the words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The mm-hmm. fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. It is not good to be partial to the wicked or deprive the righteous of justice. A fool's lips walk into a fight. So there's, there's so much wisdom that you can find about how we're supposed to be careful with our words and how the words are so powerful that you start to look at that as a theme. And then you realize Genesis starts with the word mm-hmm. and this battle that we're talking about here in 19 and 20, which uh, you, the concept of battle is interesting because that kind of means there's equal playing terms, but there's right. really not. I mean, they, words are spoken and it ends. It's the power of words coming from God. Right. And so when you start to pull on that thread, it, you see it everywhere. It's like a great Bulls team playing, you know, a really cruddy Eastern Conference team back in the day, and you just knew there's no chance, right? Or every team in Cleveland ever. <laughs> oh, oh, they won the championship in the last few years, so that changed things. But yeah, it's totally that idea. Like It's not even a close matchup. It's a blowout. Jesus just is so overwhelming and so big. And so John keeps pulling this thread over and over again. If you were to go to John 1, 10, and 14, you'd notice this this similar concept. So whether we're talking Revelation 19, 21, John 1, Genesis 1, there's a consistent theme, and it kind of pulls from this idea of Greek philosophy, but also an ancient idea that wisdom itself is something so powerful and strong that wisdom can create things, wisdom can do things. And this is a biblical concept as well as others. And we're not going to go into that here because we're going to have to make reference to that in Colossians, so I'm going to leave some of that for Colossians. Uh, So when you start dealing with Gnosticism, this is some of the things that you deal with. However, the question, when we're moving from the word topic into our second topic, there's sort of a a hinge question that connects these two. 
And the question that I want to deal with really quickly, and I'm not going to fully answer it in this podcast, but I'm, I'm going to p- paint this out here for us to think through and for us as listeners and, and Bible you know, nerds to kind of ponder. Is John writing a polemic or is John writing the true story? Okay, so what's a polemic? Totally, right? So a polemic is a, is a rhetorical strategy to attack a worldview or a faith to show it to be false. And I'll show what that looks like in a second. But my question is, is he writing a polemic or the true story? A true story is a better way to tell the exact same story. Both are based on some element of fact, but the one story is so far off from what is true that it needs to be readdressed and and fixed. And so, let, let, you know, just to kind of paint a really ridiculous concept here for us to paint and think about, let's say you and I are wayward ridiculously stupid individuals. And we look at the sun rise one morning and it, it flies over and goes and sets in the West. And we say, man, that is the most beautiful yellow Ford Fiesta or Ford Focus I have ever seen flying through the sky to make us bright and, and warm on a hot sunny day. To- <laughs> That's the most ridiculous thing because Fords can't go that far. But anyways, go ahead. Carry You're on. totally right. Carry you would have okay. broken down halfway, Carry which on. is a polemic, by the way. So the, the a polemic against that story would be this. Fords are cheap and their paint job is really bad. Sorry if you love Fords. I'm not really making this whole story up because I hate Fords. I'm just showing you the, the way a polemic would work. But if someone else came up to us and said, no, 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 it can't be a Ford because Fords are cheap. Their paint job is bad. It would never shine that brightly if it was driving through the sun or, or as the sun. So it's clearly got to be a Lamborghini, a bright yellow Lamborghini whose paint job is immaculate. And we would go, oh, you're right. That's a polemic. You're, you're pushing back on my worldview to give me a different version. But it's still false. Still false. Yep. The true story method would be that you and I would have somebody come up to us and say, you know, I love that you guys think that it's a Ford, it's a Ford Focus or a Ford Fiesta. Uh, the problem is it's not. It's a flaming chariot that's been there since the beginning of time. Your impression is true. It is, a, it is a riding thing that's going through the sky, but you're based on your context and your understanding of things. So the true story is that this is a flaming chariot, and that's what I want you to know is true. And the polemic would say it's sort of an attack against your worldview. The true story view would be saying, no, there's a better way to view this that's you're both close to being right, but this one's actually the correct way of looking at things. So the true story is just trying to take almost and just trying to try to do a shift, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Or maybe a better way to put it would be a polemic is a direct attack saying there's no way you're right because your idea is stupid versus the true story is your, your idea is based on some idea of what is true. However, there's a better story out there. So let me tell you the true story. And the reason why this matters is in the ancient world, polemics were very common, right? You have in multiple places in the Bible where people roll up to Jerusalem and say, your God is not real. I've destroyed a thousand gods like yours. Your God can't be good. He's not real. He's just a stone. He's just a temple. He's just a thing. And they're painting a polemic against it versus what the Christians are doing often is saying, you think you know what's true, but there's a better version of the story out there. So the, the story you've been told is correct to some, to some extent, but it's not totally right. So think of it the way Paul deals with the, the people in Athens, right? He comes in and says, I see that you love religion. You are very religious. You even have a, a temple to an unknown God. I love that you have that. Let me tell you who that unknown God is. Basically, you have an understanding that there is a lot going on and your understanding of the story is close to true, but let me tell you what's truth. 
Let me, let me bring the truth to you. Whereas one is an attack trying to change your view. The other one is saying, you're almost right, but let me show you how, you're exa- how you can be exactly right. And Jesus is the answer there. So I think we talked about that even when we were going through Acts, right? Because yes. all of a sudden Paul runs into some individuals who, who he realized they had what they called or what was called John's baptism. And then, so they had the basic story, but what Paul ended up doing is correcting, giving them the full story. Here's the better story. Here's the true story. And then that actually allowed their faith to flourish because now they had all the information. He didn't start off by going, you guys are dumb. He just said, no, shift it. You're thinking this way. So that's what you're getting at, right? Yeah. It would be basically like in that story, it'd be basically saying, John isn't God, but Jesus is. That's a polemic versus John was proclaiming the one that's coming. So even John's story was true, but there was a better, truer story that came right after him, and that's the one you're supposed to believe in. Right. And they all go, oh, that's so great. It matters today, and we'll get, we'll get to that in a little bit. But for now, as we move into the second topic, this is why this matters. So the second topic, we're going to open up the idea of death in Hades. <laughs> that, that's, yeah. So this is an interesting part, right? So you read this. Um, it talks about death and Hades. Now, I understand the word death. That's all around us. We've seen it. But it's capitalized here as if it's a person or something. Hades, okay, that's in a bunch of these movies that you see out there, and there's all kinds of different thoughts. And I can get the idea there was a, a I believe there's a Greek god, um, Hades. Mm-hmm. But what do they mean? What's being going on here by capitalizing the word death and personifying death? Yep. So here we go. Personifying death is something that the ancient world did a lot. So we today personify death by like a grim, grim reaper, right? Mm-hmm. You, you know, you typically think of, of it as that. So you're watching a movie and someone says that person's about to die. And so, of course, the grim reaper shows up on the steps. The thing is, the grim reaper actually has a tie to ancient mythology. And the idea that Thanatos, the, the Greek god of death, he is actually sort of depicted as sort of like a Grim Reaper character. And so then that kind of got carried through all the way through history. But what's crazy is Thanatos is not the first version of death. It is ironically where the name Thanos comes from, which is interesting that they just kind of dropped a part of the name off and made Thanos. Are you doing a movie reference? I was, yeah. That's for all the younger listeners out there. There's a few. The uh, the Thanatos is this, this god of death. And what he does is he takes you to the underworld after you have perspired, expired, perspired. <laughs> yes, you expired here on this planet. You've, you've officially moved on and you've, you've passed away. But he's not even the first of the death gods. In the Old Testament, there's comes up a couple times. In fact, in Hosea, he actually says, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Or a version of that. And what Paul does is repeat that in 1 Corinthians 15. When he by the chance it's talking about how death cannot be conquered. Jesus has already won the battle. And what the word that's used in Hosea is moat. And that is an actual Canaanite God of death. And what moat was is he was against Baal and those two fought all the time. And moat was the guy who brought you down into the underworld and sort of, he, that was his place to hold it. And so Thanatos, Mot, those are both ideas of this death god. But what's amazing is there's a death god pretty much in almost any religion all the way across the world, which is very interesting, uh, very unique. Not only that, though, after you get there, there needs to be a god who's in charge of the underworld. And so whether you're talking Egyptian mythology or whether you're talking, uh, I'm going to just go crazy here for a second, Celtic mythology, Mayan 
mythology, Aztec mythology, uh, Chinese, Japanese, even the aboriginals in Australia, every one of them have a God who either takes you from this earth as a death God and either drops you off with someone else who is in charge of the underworld. And in Greek, that's Hades. And, uh, you know, the Egyptian, there's, there's this God down there, it's gonna, Anubis, that's going to take care of you. But what's amazing is every one of these characters, almost without fail, is either in charge of a muddy place under the earth that's sort of like a sticky, muddy, wet, nasty place. It's, it's just you, you're never quite fully satisfied. You're always wanting something more. Or it's a river, like the river sticks that you have to go across, or it's a mighty ocean or sea that they're in charge of. And they have to actually move you from one place, which is life, into the, the underworld. And the one who brings you is the god of death, and the one who moves you into the underworld is the god uh, of the underworld who then decides whether you're going to go to the good place or you're going to go to the bad place. And almost without fail, like I said, whether we're talking Egyptian, Roman, Greek, Chinese, Aztec, Mayan, like across the entire world, and I've got a document right in front of me that I'm not going to go into, but there are 20, there's at least 20 gods in this document, and there's up to 75 that I found that all have this same story. Someone's going to take you, they're going to move you into a place, sometimes that place is a sea, and then your soul's going to be sort of given up at that point based on what you've done, whether you're going to go to the good part or the bad part. Whether you're found to be virtuous or not determines whether you're going to go to the bad or whether you're going to go to the good. So what John is doing here by quoting uh, Death and Hades is just something to the context of the readers who would be who would have been receiving this to begin with. Yes. He's using an example of what they would understand. Um, so you know, based on that list you have, you could you could insert all of these other gods, and it's the same concept. Yes. Yeah, so the death here is not just physical death; it's actually a personified a god or someone who would have been whether worshipped or feared. Um, and, and the text here. It is interesting. He's okay if I read this for a little bit. Okay, so I'm going to start in uh, verse 13. We're in chapter 20. It says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the point that's being made here is the people who, who may have had this concept of death and Hades and the, mm-hmm. their own worldview of what was under, under the world, and that was pre- prevalent at the time, what John has, been, has seen and has heard is that all of that is completely under the subjugation of Christ. You know, whatever your worldview with death is, it's not going to withstand. That, that basically all gets thrown out. Right, and it's being replaced because that final statement says, "If anyone's name is not written, found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire." It almost cuts across all of the different mythos, um, um, across all the generations, right? And not just generations, but worldwide. Mm-hmm. I mean, up until the moment of Christ's death and resurrection, the story across every religion, even Hindu, Buddhist, you move into an afterlife. And there's sort of a judgment moment, and then you're either sent back to start over again, or you're dealt with and put in a good place or a bad place. And so whether you're talking about Buddhism and Hinduism, where you're moving up the ladder or down the ladder based on reincarnation, or whether you're talking about any of these other religions, whether we're talking about Greek, Egyptian, whatever, they all have the same thing, which comes back to the question that I asked a little bit ago, is John writing a polemic or is John telling the true story? And here's why it matters. If Jesus is giving John an image, a, a vision here that says, 
this is how it's really going to go down. Are death and Hades real or are they just brandished individuals that John recognizes and goes, oh, this is going to preach really well in a Greek-Roman world, you know, mm-hmm. a, a Greco-Roman culture. And, and he knew that it would go all the way till today when we're still talking about Grim Reaper and that kind of stuff. This idea that you think those individuals are in charge of your fate. They're not. In fact, they're so low on the totem pole that for their bosses, the two beasts and the dragon to be dealt with, there's an angel that flies down in the beginning of chapter 20 and just unlocks the abyss. This angel's the one that tosses them in. He, you know, so, Jesus, it's like, so it's like Jesus doesn't even need to do that where he's like, I got, he's, I got a person who's going to go take care of that. He's so powerful. He yeah. doesn't even need to take death, Hades on, head on. He just snaps his fingers and one of his angels goes and does the job. And the angels are the lowest of the low in the heavenly realm, right? Because you're talking about seraphim and cherubim and all these other individuals that you see. Angels are just kind of the, the, the doorkeeper, you know, the one that's at the very edge. And so this angel just flies over with a, with a you know, or, or zaps over with a key, opens a, the abyss and drops the dragon in, drops the two beasts in, then goes after death and Hades, and then everybody else gets judged. But I think it's interesting that death and Hades have all of the souls of people in a watery grave. So you start talking about all these other religions. There's something going on here. And so is John writing a polemic saying, your view is wrong. None of those things are true. You've missed the mark completely. My God is better. Or is John writing the true version of the story, which is still similar. You think your gods have access to you and tell you what to do. However, they're just players in a much bigger story, right? The sun isn't a Lamborghini. It isn't a Ford Fiesta. It isn't even a chariot. The sun is actually a spoken into being being that God has created that does its thing. Just like death and Hades, they're capitalized here because the same words are used of those Greek gods. And so the question that translators have to deal with, and this is why it's capitalized in the ESV, is is John using these as a personified version of death and Hades— which go together, and at the end of a gladiator fight, who would come out? Well, death would come out and celebrate those who had died, and then Hades would run over. Someone dressed in a Hades mask, clearly. I mean, that's not the real death in Hades. But death and Hades would run over, and, and death would celebrate while Hades grabbed your body and pulled you into the underworld. So this was also a theatrical thing that was going totally. on at this time. So, so the, the, the audience that John was writing to would have a very vivid and— um, rich understanding of of what was being written against yes. here. So whatever power you think is going on in death, he's writing to say it doesn't even compare to what's coming into the power of of God and Christ, the true one. Totally. So I think is it it's possible though, isn't it, to have it be both and that it's a polemic in in some areas that it's a writing against no I'm going to completely correct that they actually have no power, but also a, a truer story. It, it's possible that those are both wrapped together. I, I think it somehow is both. Not, and this is what's so great about the Bible and what's so great about the Holy Spirit is if you're a listener and all you've ever believed is that death and Hades are real, you read this and you go, oh my goodness, they've got nothing on this God. I'm going to go worship Jesus. He's way better. If you know that those two aren't real, you're an atheist, but you have heard the stories of death and Hades, you go, oh, this is a way better story. I'm going to stick with that story because this is real. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I think it's both and at the same time and amazingly beautiful. And it's just the way, and I think that's how the most of the Bible is written actually, because there's, whether you're talking about creation myths or whether you're talking about the, the, the judgment day myths, the entire world has these things, no matter what religion you follow. The difference is 
Christianity is the only one that deals with it in this way. And basically that is, you think your God is so great, even if he's real, he's subservient to mine. Or, oh, you don't think gods are real. Well, great, but our God is because here's what's going to happen. And all these things that happen at the end of Revelation 20 sort of show us Jesus is in charge. There's nothing for us to be afraid of. Well, it's a good thing that we don't have to deal with these issues now, right? Because death in Hades, you know, nobody really studies it except in your your you know side Greek class. We we don't have that right. issue, right? Totally. Or wait, do we have false views of death and judgment? Maybe. Well, I think you had a great one that I would love for you to jump into in a second. But our world is full of ver- versions of death and what happens in the afterlife that are not biblical. Even some that are within the religious realm, right? Even within Christianity. There's a view that I think is really, really wrong that you brought up yesterday. The whole idea of purgatory. Correct. So uh, you die, you aren't quite good enough, so you go to this holding cell, and uh, in some religious traditions, you can have people who are still alive, light candles, give money, do things to actually move that person from this world, you know, from this world's perspective, I can move this person that I love from purgatory into heaven. And I've seen this in some of the travels I've done around the world. You, you can go, and it was, I think, at buck fifty to light a candle to hopefully move your relative over, which is, it's odd because you, you, you don't see anything of that in the scripture, yet it's so embedded into this, into this and I'm, I've got air quotes going, Christian culture. Well, and, and what's crazy is we have this, and Revelation has been super clear, right? You're either sealed for the king or you're marked by the beast, there's no like in between here. There's nobody that's, well, I really want to be sealed by the king, but I'm not going to be quite good enough for him. Yeah, it's like verse 15. It says, if, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Or you would, to have a purgatory work, well, only half the name was written, right? So they're kind of going to hang out a little bit, and then we need to like finish the letters, or we'll just see how this plays out, right? And so that's, totally. so, so I was being, you know, kind of goofy before, like we don't have these issues now, but man always has an issue with, right with judgment and tries to construct some, um, some structure around what is going on with death. Right. Um, and, and so that's why this is such an important chapter, because what John was given was the actual true story of what's going to happen, right? Correct. And, and part of the issue in our culture and what we deal with, even religiously within Christianity, is so many people think that just filling a seat at a church on a Sunday morning is, is following Jesus. But everyone knows that you can go to church your whole life and never actually be following Jesus. So then you would consider that person good enough, quotes, but not quite good enough to get in. Whereas there's no dis- discernment here between you're either following Jesus or you're not. You don't just get to fill an empty you know, chair on a Sunday and go, man, that was good enough. I'm close. And so afterward, I'll get a second chance and we're good to go. You have one life. Jesus is king. Are you following him or aren't you? That's the true story. But that's a hard story, though, because I would rather be graded on a curve. Who wouldn't? I would much rather go, oh, I'm better than these people. So I can be maybe pushed over that edge a little bit and I don't have to actually then worry about it, right? Right. As long as I stay ahead of the really bad people. And you hear that quite often. Uh, I know I've been to some... Uh, some uh, events, funerals even, where where that was spoken. Not mm-hmm. here, but it was just they were good enough. And you just go, but that's not the truth. That's not in Revelation. There's nowhere in the Bible that says that's good. Right. Because only God is good. God determines what is good. And humans since the beginning of time have been fighting that thing. 
we don't we don't understand what good is. Our definition of good is nothing close to what God's is. There's only one that can bring us to what good is, and that's Jesus, because he lived the life that we needed him to live. He did what we needed him to do, so that now death and Hades have no hold on us. There's nothing to be afraid of, which is really the second major theme in our culture today that we have to deal with as far as polemic versus true story. Everyone is afraid of death. Yeah. To the point where we will make major strides as a worldwide uh, collective, whatever you, whatever word you want to use there, to avoid death at all costs. And I'm not telling us that we should run headlong into death. The Bible's very clear that we shouldn't do that. You know, you and I aren't going to jump off a cliff later and, and trust that Jesus is going to take care of us. <laughs> like, that's ridiculous. You don't take chances, but you're not afraid of death. So I don't sit in my house all day long. I've got a job to do. I've got people to reach. I've got, I've got people to talk to. So I'm going to move outside of my sphere, my bubble, and I'm going to reach folks. I'm not afraid of them. I'm going to take precautions. You know, I'm going to wash my hands. I'm going to use sanitizer. I'm going to wear a mask if it makes people feel comfortable. Uh, but, and I'm not belittling people who are afraid of, of death, but I'm, I'm not afraid of anything. The worst that's going to happen to me is I'm going to be with Jesus. Right. Right. And, and if you, if you step back and you think about that, um, we should be able to walk through the world without fear. And we could spend a whole nother couple of podcasts just pulling out verses and examples of, of those that were following God, following Jesus, who just said, yeah, that's fine. Uh, you do what you need to do. Mm-hmm. I'm following Jesus. I'm okay. I, I got this. Um, because my faith is what's going to uh, allow me to be in his presence. You can't actually touch me. Um, but if you just think about then how much money and time and effort is placed on trying to make us secure and push away death, something that's coming regardless mm-hmm. of what year it is, whether you're 50 or 110 or 185, at some point we will die. And that's when that separation of those that are, are written in the book, uh, in the word of, uh, in the book, uh, their words are written in the book of life or they're not. Right. And, and whether it's an early year or late year, it's all about that decision and then that life that you're following. And uh, I think that's one of the, the most powerful parts of Revelation. We sometimes get caught up in, in some of the other things that are going on, but I think you know, even in this particular, particular part of Scripture, is one of the messages is everything else pales in comparison yep. to Christ. And there will be one separation, those that are following and those that are not. And it doesn't actually matter what worldview you have subscribed to or if you've made your own. It will not stand in the presence of, of Jesus. No, it won't. And this is what sent the early church rushing headlong into leper colonies and into places of, of potential persecution. And it was not because they wanted to die, but it was because they weren't afraid and they had a, a Savior who already had conquered death and now they had the Holy Spirit leading them where to go, and they listened to him. And they weren't thrill junkies. They were living out this Absolutely. love love those that are around you, love others. So if you have somebody who's suffering from the plague or right. more current times who's, who's suffering with Ebola, um, the Christians rushed in knowing that there is a pretty good chance they're going to get it, going, right. I'm going to love this person. And if I get it, I'm fine, but I have this opportunity to love them. It's That's kind of the the... I would say the right understanding of of life and death and, and fear of death or not having a fear of death is right. I will I will sacrifice myself because I'm secure with where I'm going, and so therefore I'm willing to put myself out there for others. Right. 
And, and one of my mission's heroes, and I'll end with this idea, was a doctor, and he was treating someone who actually had a version of the plague. And after he got done treating the person, he noticed on his hand that he had a cut, and he thought, this can't end well. And so he went home, and that night he got a fever. The next day was feverish all day long and thought, here I go, I'm going to die. And he just prayed and said, Lord, if you're going to take me, I trust you, I love you, I'm with you, but Lord, I don't think my job is done here on this planet yet. Save me. And the next morning he woke up with no fever, and he said, let's go. And he then moved in and actually started a missions agency that moved into Africa. And as he went deeper and deeper into Africa, everyone kept saying, this is crazy. You're, you're going so far. You're doing so many things that are so wild. And in his mind, he had already faced death once. God had taken it from him. And it wasn't that he was a, you know, running headlong into death again, but he just wasn't afraid of it. There was nothing to fear. And I wish, and again, I'm not throwing stones here, but I wish more of us treated life like that, that we were listening to the Spirit, we were called to do something, and we're going to go do it. And we're not afraid of what's going to happen, because we know that if God has led us there, even if it ends in death, even if everyone calls us foolish or ridiculous or whatever words they want to use about us, it doesn't matter. We have nothing to fear, because Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades. No one can conquer.